uh, they piled on to his already troubled mind and just kept being critical of him and really giving him the what for. And what we're going to see in today in, in Job chapter 15 is this is Eliphaz. Now, we've already met Eliphaz, but this is his second speech that he gives to Job. Uh, and he is still spewing senseless stupidity. He's still just rambling and just going overboard with his criticisms of Job. But I want you to see how, I want you to see what he said, uh, because maybe a friend has said something similar. And maybe you felt like uh, you felt like Job. They just piled it on at the wrong time. But I also want us to pay attention to Job's response, which we'll get into in chapter sixteen. But let's start with Job fifteen, beginning at verse one. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, "Does a wise man answer with empty counsel or fill himself with the hot east wind? Should he argue with useless talk or with words that serve no good purpose?" But you even undermine the fear of God and hinder meditation before Him. Your iniquity teaches you what to say, and you choose the language of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not I. Your own lips testify against you. Were you the first person ever born? Or were you brought forth before the hills? Do you listen in on the counsel of God? Or have a monopoly on wisdom? What do you know that we don't? What do you understand that is not clear to us? Both the gray-haired and the elderly are with us, men older than your father. Are God's consolations not enough for you, even the words that deal gently with you? Why has your heart misled you? And why do your eyes flash as you turn your anger against God and allow such words to leave your mouth? What is man that he should be pure, or one born of a woman that he should be righteous? If God puts no trust in His holy ones and the heavens are not pure in His sight, how much less one who is revolting and corrupt, who drinks injustice like water? Listen to me, and I will inform you. A little air of importance there, doesn't it? I will describe what I have seen, what was declared by wise men and was not suppressed by their ancestors the land was given to them alone when no foreigner passed among them. A wicked man rides in pain all his days. Only a few years are reserved for the ruthless. Dreadful sounds fill his ears. When he is at peace, a robber attacks him. He doesn't believe he will return from darkness. He is destined for the sword. He wanders about for food, saying, Where is it? He knows the day of darkness is at hand. Trouble and distress terrify him, overwhelming him like a king prepared for battle. For he is stretched out his hand against God and has arrogantly opposed the Almighty. He rushes headlong at him with his thick studded shields. Though his face is covered with fat and his waistline bulges with it, he will dwell in ruined cities and abandoned houses destined to become piles of rubble. He will no longer be rich. His wealth will not endure. His possessions will not increase in the land. He will not escape from the darkness. Flames will wither his shoots, and by the breath of God's mouth he will depart. Let him not put trust in worthless things, being led astray for what he gets in exchange will prove worthless. It will be accomplished before his time, and his branch will not flourish. He will be like a vine that drops its unripe grapes, and like an olive tree that sheds its blossoms. For the company of the godless will have no children, and fire will consume the tents of those who offer bribes. They conceive trouble. And give birth to evil. Their womb prepares deception. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, undoubtedly somebody in here has had to listen to a lecture or a speech 
by maybe even a well-intentioned friend or family member who just went on and on and on and, and, and just piled on to our already troubled mind and troubled heart. And so what are we to do when someone just comes along and piles on top of our already overwhelmed heart and overwhelmed mind? Thank you for the example that we have in your Word. Thank you for the discernment that the Holy Spirit gives to us. Sometimes even well-intentioned friends can be full of it. And so God, help us to know how to respond. Help us, even during this season, it seems like there's more traffic on the road and there's more stress and there's more tension. Help us to rise above that. Even if it's been a tough week, even if it's been a tough month or a tough year, we can get inspiration right here in your word. So help us to cling to you, to draw near to you as you draw near to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So what do you do when you're having a bad week and you've got a friend like Eliphaz who just comes along and just keeps talking and talking and talking and adding to your already troubled mind, already adding uh, to your troubled heart. And maybe there, is, there are, remember what I told you in week one, every once in a while there is a little nugget of truth even out of a fool's mouth. And we that have been given discernment are to listen and see what we can learn from that. Because I'm here to tell you that, that even sometimes when, when our friends uh, don't have the right information or don't have the experience that we do, you can still learn from them. And you can still uh, sometimes get just a little nugget of truth out of what they're saying. So don't totally tune them out. Don't totally uh, block that because listen to me. Now, I know we don't like criticism, and I know we claim to like constructive criticism, right? But in that criticism, constructive or not constructive, I believe that there's something that we need to hear, and we can lean on the Holy Spirit, and we can say, God, is there something I need to learn from that? Is there something that I can change? Is there something that I can do? Eliphaz just kept spewing, just spewing senseless stupidity, as I said earlier, and he claimed... And I don't know if you noticed this, but as Job got more defensive, his friends got more rude. You, you can sense that Job's defenses go up a little bit. And as he starts defending himself and defending his actions, rightfully so, his friends now become more rude and more condemning. Can I tell you there's a difference between accountability and accusations? If you're saying that you want to hold your friend or family member accountable, kudos. That's biblical. That's what we're supposed to do. But I think sometimes when you just come at somebody with accusations, that's not really accountability. And how many of you know that that friend or family member is probably not going to be in the right place to receive your accountability because all they hear is your accusations. That's right. And I'm going to tell you that we, we, that we have to balance and make sure that everything we're doing is in the right, with the right heart, with the desire to see that person reconciled, not to beat them up. I get the sense as we go through the book of Job that Job's friends just really wanted to kick a man while he's down. They just really want to step on him, just make him even a little lower. And at church, that's not who we're, that's not who we're supposed to be. That's not what we're called to do. We're not supposed to hurt our wounded. We're supposed to come alongside them and help. But I don't get the impression, and you probably don't either, that Job's friends were there to help Job. It seems like they were there to actually hurt Job. And if you've been on either side of that accountability where you needed to hold somebody accountable or where somebody held you accountable, you know that sometimes it's hard when somebody comes at you just very accusatory because you don't sense what? Love. 
You sense condemnation. So make sure we balance everything with grace and with truth. With grace and with truth. If you have grace and you have truth and you keep them in balance, then that's where true accountability and true friendships grow and nurture from that. No one takes kindly to harsh words. You don't like them. I don't like them. And it's tough, and it, it causes our heart to kind of build up protection. Why? Because that's your heart. You're the only one that's going to protect it. And so when somebody comes at you with just accusations, you get defensive. You build up that wall, and you won't let that person through. <coughs> Telling Job that he's in pain, I want you to think about this for a moment. All right, so let's review. He lost his ten children. He lost his possessions. He lost his wealth. And he's covered in painful boils. And telling him, hey, Job, you're in pain because you're wicked. That's not only incorrect, that's never going to be received in the right spirit by that person. Like, who wants to be told? You're wicked. Hey, you're wicked. If you'd quit being wicked, you wouldn't have those painful balls all over your body. Hey, Job, if you'd quit being wicked, your children would be alive. You think that ever would have been received in the right spirit by somebody? I'm going to tell you right now, I don't want friends like Job. <laughs> I don't need friends like Job had. Those aren't friends. Now, the most amazing part of this is we're not even halfway through the book of Job. Turn to your neighbor and go, oh, geez. <laughs> we're not even halfway through the book of Job. And we're going to find out that as much as we get on these friends and we talk about their bad advice, the turning point, the turning point for Job comes in a very significant moment and it has something to do with his friends. You'll just have to keep coming back a few more Sundays to learn what that is. Alright, so let's go to chapter 16 because this is when Job replies to all of this. So I want you to think about it now. He's already been beat up by his friends. This is a second series of speeches that he's had to listen to. I'm sure at some point they all started sounding like Charlie Brown's teacher. <laughs> So this is what he finally says when he answers in Job chapter 16, verse 1. Then Job answered, I've heard many things like these. You are all miserable comforters. Is there no end to your empty words? What provokes you that you continue testifying? If you were in my place, I could also talk like you. I could string words together against you and shake my head at you. Instead, I would encourage you with my mouth. Wow. And the consolation from my lips would bring relief. Look up here for a moment. When your friends are suffering, or if you're on the end and you're the victim, what you need from people is not even advice, and it's not even the, the, the long lectures. What you need is support and encouragement. And if you need that, then don't you think that person that's suffering needs that too? Right. It's real easy for us to say, well, don't lecture me, and then you go and lecture somebody. <laughs> All right, verse 6. Even if I speak, my suffering is not relieved. And if I hold back, what have I lost? Surely he has now exhausted me. You have devastated my entire family. You have shriveled me up and has become a witness. My frailty rises up against me and testifies to my face. His anger te tears at me and he harasses me. He gnashes his teeth at me. My enemy pierces me with his eyes. Now, pay attention here. It's as if Job knew about that meeting 
but in the heavenly council. Remember the meeting between God and the angels and the adversary? It's as if he's now seen that there's this other dimension where spiritual warfare takes place against us. You can't see it. And if you're not aware of it, then you're defenseless. You don't even know how to contend with it. We fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. So maybe Joe's words here are indicating that he's kind of aware that there's an enemy that's stirring the pot. He says here, He dashes his teeth at me. My enemy pierces me with his eyes. They open their mouths against me and strike my cheek with contempt. They join themselves together against me. God hands me over to unjust men. He throws me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he shattered me. He seized me by the scruff of the neck and smashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. You sense that Job here is really overwhelmed, right? I love the honesty. It may offend you, but I love it. I love that Job just feels like he can just let, you know, let it be known that this is how he's feeling. His archers surround me. He pierces my kidneys without mercy and pours my bile on the ground. He breaks through my defenses again and again. He charges at me like a warrior. Start paying attention and see if you don't sense something prophetic right here. I have sewn sackcloth over my skin. I have buried my strength in the dust. My face has grown red with weeping and darkness covers my eyes. Although my hands are free from violence and my prayer is pure, earth, do not cover my blood. May my cry for help find no resting place. Even now my witness is in heaven and my advocate is in the heights. My friends scoff at me as I weep before God. I wish that someone might arbitrate. I wish that someone would arbitrate between a man and God just as a man pleads for his friend. For only a few years will pass before I go the way of no return. Listen, I, again, I, I like the honesty of Job. I like the genuineness. I love the authenticity of Job because he just pours it out there and tells it like it is. I love, though, that he says, you guys are miserable comforters. You guys aren't doing me a bit of good. You really are terrible at this. But do you remember, let's see if we can reflect back. When Job's friends first showed up and they said they didn't even recognize Job, probably because he's covered in painful boils, but also because of his deep sorrow and grief over losing his children. Do you remember it says they couldn't even recognize him? But do you remember what it then says? They came and sat down with him and remained what? Silent. And man, if the story could have just stopped right there, and if you would stop right there, instead of lecturing, and just be there for your friend, just be there when that person is going through that difficult time. If those friends had just stopped that day and just sat there and been a been present, the story would have turned out a lot different, right? We wouldn't have had to go through all these chapters of these lectures and these long-winded speeches by these friends that thought they knew everything. They weren't aware that all of this was from a meeting. Consider my servant Job. That's God. God said, have you considered my servant Job? And this meeting that took place in the heavenlies that his friends weren't aware of, but yet... Why did they feel the need that they, they thought they could represent God, that they thought they could speak on God's behalf? Instead of just being there and being present for Job during his suffering, why did they feel like they all of a sudden had a theology degree and they understood 
divinity and they understood what was going on in Job's life. Sometimes you and I put the put the cart before the horse, I think. We don't know that there was a there was all of this is a part of a plan. All of this is happening in our lives, even when we don't like it, even when we go through the valley, even when we have to climb the mountain. All of this is for a purpose to build us up and to develop in us what God wants to be there. And if it weren't for the valley, your life would have been missing this. If it weren't for that mountain you had to climb, your life would have been missing what God saw that you needed just at the right time. I love here that he says you're miserable comforters, and sometimes the friends in my life and in your life can be miserable comforters too. But did you know that Jesus said, there's a comforter that's coming to you. That Jesus said, when I leave, a comforter will come. Paraclete. Parakletos in the Greek. This comforter that Jesus referred to is the third member of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And he says that advocate, that comforter, so isn't it amazing that what Job was needing is provided to us in a relationship with Christ? An advocate. One who advocates on your behalf. An arbitrator. One who comes and intercedes. Isn't it amazing that what Job really needed that he couldn't find in his friends and you can't find either? You can't find what you're looking for in friends, in relationships, in a career advancement. You can't find what you're looking for in a bigger house, in a shinier car. You can't find what you're looking for. How do you know, Brother Chan? You don't know what I'm looking for. Oh, I do. Eternity has been placed in the heart of man. It says in the book of Ecclesiastes, written by the wisest man who ever lived. Eternity has been set in your heart. From the day you were born, eternity was there. You have a longing for a place that you've never even been to. And you are filling that void in your life. For many of us, we try to fill it with things, stuff, money, job. And you try to fill that hole, but the problem is it's a God-shaped hole. And all the stuff that you were putting in there, cramming in there, all the busyness, all the toys, all the fun, you still had that nagging void. You still had that lingering emptiness. And you would shake your face and say, why? I've got the job I've always wanted. I've got the big old house I've always wanted. i got all the things I wanted. I finally got that BMW, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Amen. <laughs> oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? So here's the thing. After you tried to fill all that stuff, did you laugh? Okay, he laughed. I'm good. <laughs> after, after you've tried to fill that all that hole, uh, you've tried to put all that stuff in that hole and it's still empty, then just like Job recognizing, there's got to be an advocate. There's got to be an arbitrator. There's got to be a comfort. And there is. You see, when we go through the valley, when we climb up the mountain, you don't need to do it alone. You can't do it alone. You can attempt. And many people have attempted Many people have attempted. And they're left empty-handed time and time again. Job said, he, he said, you are wearing me out. My comforters are wearing me out. Job is going through this suffering and it's preparing him, by the way, to be a better friend and a better companion. Isn't that neat? So see, he was given a terrible example through Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. He was given a terrible example of how to be a friend through those guys. But how many of you know that when you go through something like this, it helps you be a better friend. In fact, I'm going to show you that's in actually the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Something I really not paid attention to for a long time. 
Uh, as a as a pastor, one of the things that we have to do is, you know, be at the bedside of, of people that are in the process of passing from this life to the other side. And as a, as a pastor, especially when I was in full time ministry, I spent a lot of hours in OR rooms with families that received terrible news and were told that there was nothing the doctors could do. And I've been at the bedside of many people. I, uh, honestly, I've lost count. But I'm going to tell you what helped me prepare to be that pastor that is there for families when they go through grief and when they go through the loss. I'm going to tell you what has prepared me to be at the bedside. Larry can tell you I got a call from him before I was even his pastor as his mama was passing away. And uh, I don't know how I did it, but in record time, I got all the way from Airline Baptist Church over to where his mama was and was able to pray there. The thing that has helped me be that and that it, uh, be in that moment and help people through that is I have faced that. I have been at the bedside of my sister as she passed. I've been at the bedside of my mama holding her hand as she passed from this life to the other life. And here's what it tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, something I had overlooked and you've probably overlooked, but look at what it says in 2 Corinthians 1.3. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. God says, I'm going to comfort you so that you can comfort him. God says, I'm going to comfort you so that you can comfort them. God says, you're going to go through this, but I'm going to go through it with you. And by this experience, it'll help prepare you for what you're going to see in a co-worker's life or in a neighbor's life. It's going to prepare you to be a comforter for them. Because why? Because you've walked that path. Job's experience with his friends taught him what a, what a friend should be and taught him what a friend needs to be. Even though it was tough. Even though he didn't want to have to deal with all those lectures and all the stuff that his friends gave him. Do you notice though that from about verse 10 through 13 of chapter 15, 16, Job 16, from about 10 through 13, it's very prophetic. Very prophetic. In fact, I want to read some of that again so that you can maybe pick back up on it. In verse 10, this is what it says. They open their mouths against me and strike my cheeks with contempt. They join themselves together against me. Do you know both the Romans and the religious Jews joined forces against Jesus and came against him? God hands me over to unjust men. When Jesus went to that cross, he was handed over to the unjust. He throws me into the hands of the Wicked. Those verses have a very prophetic nature, and it's like Job is showing us a picture of a future Messiah. Job is just a symbol, just an example of the suffering Messiah and what Jesus would face and what he would go through. Notice it says that Job said, My friends scoff at me, and he wanted that arbitrator to plead his case, someone to stand in the gap. Jesus is the one who stands in the gap. You and I know this, but maybe it needs, it bears repeating. Life ain't all sunshine and rainbows. That's bad grammar, but good theology. Amen. Life is not all sunshine and rainbows. And so 
I don't know how many of you are Rocky fans, but he gave a great speech in one of those. How many Rocky movies are there? 15, 17, 20? I think it was in Rocky 18. <clears throat> he gave this speech to his son, and I think it's got a lot of truth into it, and it reminds me of Job. So listen. Listen. 